Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There's a song I'm rather fond of. I'm sure many of you know it. It's called Woodstock. It was originally written by the folk star Joni Mitchell, but made most famous by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young on their 1970 album, Deja Vu. It references the Woodstock Music Festival of the previous year, but it's mostly about the spirit of the age that that festival came to represent. Anyway, what interests me most about the song is the biblical language Mitchell uses to deliver her message. The last chorus, in particular, is striking to me. It goes like this. We are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And whatever else Mitchell is up to here, she's pretty well capturing the human condition. We are stardust, okay. Yes, she's taking the tradition that we are made of dust and pushing the clock back a few billion years to catch up with the Big Bang. We are golden. Indeed, human beings are wondrous creatures, the pinnacle of God's good creation. We are caught in the devil's bargain. Well, that is certainly true. We heard all about that in our Old Testament reading this morning. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Ooh, so close. But no. This is where the song kind of runs aground. There is no way back to the garden. And God's solution for redeeming his fallen human creatures from our hopeless entanglement in the devil's bargain moves humanity forward to a new reality, not back to where we were, however good that was. This, I think, is what St. Paul is stressing in the passage we heard from his epistle to the Romans. After a tragic failure or a profound loss, it is only natural to feel a longing for what we had before. And we may even try to figure out how we can recreate that reality somehow. At first glance, we might think that this is what's happening in today's gospel reading. Jesus is succeeding where Adam and Eve failed in resisting the devil's temptation. He's repairing broken humanity, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, as it were. But St. Paul says, actually, no, that's not quite what's happening here. It's, it's so much more than that. True, there is a definite parallel between Adam and Christ. Both are representatives of the whole human race, and their actions have an indelible, irreversible effect on the human condition. Adam's sin has meant that every human being is born already condemned to die. And on the other side of the equation, Christ's obedience means that humanity's sentence has been lifted, and we are given a great gift of life. But as St. Paul is at pains to stress, this equation is not balanced. Twice, he tells us that the gift is not like the sin. This is not a like-for-like -like situation. The gift of justification and life in Christ does not simply balance out sin and death to restore a kind of equilibrium. The gift is given in excess. 
the benefit to the human race far exceeds any kind of life we have ever known, even in our innocence. This is what's behind St. Paul's use of abundance language throughout this passage. The free gift abounded for the many in verse 15. And we receive the abundance of grace in verse 17. And finally in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In that last example especially, St. Paul drives, his home, drives home his point. What we hear translated as abounded all the more is actually a word that according to New Testament scholar N.T. Wright isn't found anywhere else in ancient Greek apart from St. Paul's own use of it one other time in his second letter to the Corinthians. Wright speculates that perhaps the apostle coined it himself. So this might just be St. Paul's version of one of our contemporary words like ginormous or grandiloquent or my personal favorite, tremendiful. The point is that all our words fall short of what God has graciously done to address our fallen human condition. Only a comic mashup of superlatives can break us out of conventional thinking long enough to make us begin to consider the kind of life we have been given in Christ. It is a life that is more than human life has ever been, another kind of life altogether. As St. Paul puts it at the end of our reading, it is eternal life. This is the tremendous triumph of grace, and this is what Jesus is enacting on our behalf when he resists the devil in the desert. But what if grace doesn't feel too triumphant right now? What if eternal life feels pretty distant? And the life I'm living now feels far from abundant, let alone tremendous. It is winter and life is hard. People still die and we hear a lot in the news that makes us anxious and uncertain about our prospects for flourishing. Mama said there'd be days like this and well, here they are. Where is the grace of God? When we find ourselves feeling like this, we are particularly susceptible to temptation. It is no coincidence that the devil visits Jesus in the desert, in a place of emptiness and lack. Temptation works in the space of our unfulfilled desires. It plays upon the pain of the awareness that we do not now have what we long for. And it, it, it invites us to ease that pain, to take what we want. But it's important to note that the sin here is in the taking. It's not in the desire itself or in the object of our desire. More often than not, the things we want are not bad in and of themselves. Let's look, for instance, at the objects of temptation in our gospel reading. They are all good. Bread, or food in general, is a very good thing. It is, one of our, it is one of our basic needs for survival. It is certainly not wrong for Jesus to want bread after 40 days of fasting in the desert. Likewise, the desire to demonstrate one's faith in God is a good thing. The devil cites Psalm 91 when he tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. 
reminding Jesus that God has promised to charge his angels with the protection of those who place their trust in him. It is not bad to want to show yourself to be a person of such faith. And finally, for Jesus, it is not wrong to desire the kingdoms of the world. They are rightfully his. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of all creation. It is not wrong to want what is rightfully yours. But none of these things have been given to Jesus yet. His fast is not yet over. He has not yet been called to lay down his life in Jerusalem. And maybe as he's standing with the devil on that tall mountain, surveying the kingdoms of the world, he's looking ahead to the day that St. Paul describes in Ephesians 1, when he will be seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, when all things will be placed under his feet. But that day has not yet come for him, and to try to take that now on the devil's terms would be sin. So temptation invites us to sin by taking a good thing out of order, so to speak. We sin by taking something before it has been given to us, or without waiting to see if it will be given at all, or by taking it in a bad way, by, for instance, breaking the first commandment and worshiping the devil, in Jesus' case. So what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves in the place of lack, vulnerable to temptation? This is where I think the season of Lent can be a great help to us. One of the core disciplines we embrace in our observance of Lent is fasting. Now, there are two aspects of fasting that I want to draw our attention to. First, we give up something good. Fasting is not the same as breaking a harmful habit or cutting out some to something toxic from our lives. We should always be trying to do that. A fast is rather a set time for abstaining from something truly good something that is a cherished sign of life's goodness, one of the things that directly contributes to our sense of flourishing. Secondly, fasting is for a limited time only. It is not forever. A fast is supposed to eventually be broken and come to an end. With these two things in mind, we might think of fasting as a kind of low-stakes temptation simulator. We set a period of time with a definite ending during which we give up some good, something that hurts just enough to make us feel the lack. We enter into that time and we let ourselves confront the temptation to indulge in the object of our desire, to take back what we have given up, and we try to resist. And what does this discipline do for us? It makes us familiar with the time of trial, with life in the desert. It reminds us of just how feeble we are in the face of temptation and makes us quick to cry out to God for help, as we did in our collect this morning. Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. And it reminds us that the time of trial is not forever. It will come to an end. We will not feel the pain of our lack indefinitely. We can trust the giver of all good things to give us what we need 
when we need it. But it also does something else. It opens our eyes to what is still here in the place of lack. We are so easily and so often distracted by the many goods this life has to offer. They distract us as the pleasures that make us glad. They distract us as the objects of our desire for which we feel the pain of longing. But in our fast, we try to shift our attention away from these goods. And as we do, we begin to notice what still remains here and now, what has perhaps always been here. We notice that we are not alone. The one whose triumph over temptation in the desert so radically altered our fate and transfigured the human condition walks there still and meets us there. And while we feel the discomfort of having less of the life we've known or the life we've always expected, we come to experience, even here, the life that is ours in him, eternal life. So let this season of Lent be a testing ground for the times of trial you will yet face in your life, for the season of lack when you will find yourself in the desert. And if you are already there now, give your lack to God as your fast. Ask him for the grace to trust him, to be the one who knows what you need when you need it, the one who will break this fast in the fullness of time. And ask him to open your eyes to his presence with you in the desert, even now. And may you find in him more than enough to sustain you in the tremendous excess of his grace, making even this desert abound with eternal life. Amen.